Welcome to Seize the Score. I am your host, Chaz Weatherby. Today's podcast features Willie Porter. Willie Porter is an extraordinary artist. He's a brilliant guitarist, a compelling songwriter, and a wonderful storyteller. Moreover, he's an interesting, thoughtful, and compassionate person. We had a great in-depth conversation that covered a lot of ground. If you're not familiar with Willie's body of work, go to his website, willieporter.com, check out some of his music. The link to that is in the description below. And get some of his music. Listen to it. You will not be disappointed. If you would like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com, seize the score. The link is also in the description below. But before we get to the conversation, let's listen to Breathe by Willie Porter.
talk to you and thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast thank you it's a little bit unplanned and unscripted what we have in mind this evening we're just going to see where conversation leads us but i did want to start by asking you how you got into music in the first place because um, in your bio it says that you're largely self-taught now what does that mean that just means that i grew up in a house where there was a lot of music, but it was the majority of it was being played by ear. So my father was a piano player, um, but my earliest experiences with music were with him sitting at the piano, voicing out chords, and just sitting next to him and watching him do that. And that evolved later into him listening to records and going and figuring out what the chord changes were in these different jazz records. And there was never any written notation. And so for that reason, uh, from the age of say four or five, my earliest memories of music were without notation and it seemed very natural for me to just trust my ear to figure out what was going on. And so that, later translated um, into my early efforts at the viola, which were um, not great. Um, That's like most efforts at the viola. <laughs> well, but I, um, I realized right away that um, I had a difficulty in associating written nomenclature with emotional expression. I would sort of freeze up when I looked at a page and something would happen where I would play something, but it wouldn't have any of the meaning that I knew should be there. And so that was a problem for me and I discarded that. And when I got to the guitar, I really studied with a teacher who was a folk teacher. So it was all about learning songs and learning how to, to deliver a song versus making sure that it was absolutely accurate. And I think that, you know, for better or worse, has led me to where I am now. But, you know, having, um, I've, I've had the, the, the pleasure to actually work together with you in the past, and you have a, an incredibly high degree of precision and, and technique that you bring to the instrument. That Thank you. It's, it, you know, you, you've come to it perhaps in a, in a path that to someone like me, I mean, um, as some of the listeners will know, I'm largely a classical guy. We we're trained to just look at the page and as best we can 
we're trying to to achieve some kind of elusive perfection of of realizing what a composer has written down mm -hmm. um and you're you're coming from it the opposite uh end of that of that equation which is you never have a a printed page in front of you it's a blank slate every time and yet you're also coming at it in the end with a kind of super high level of of technical precision and and accuracy and uh, I just find it fascinating because I know that sometimes you have the freedom on stage to take a song and just improvise with it and yet mm -hmm. and yet at the same time you have having worked with again with someone like me who needs to stay a little more on a uh, within a, a, a framework um, you can do that as well well first of all thank you for the compliment on the technical side of things and I take it very seriously from the standpoint of um, trying to approach the guitar with some consistency so and the quality of each note that you generate is really important in how you approach that and I did study classical guitar for a year with a man named Ray Miller who was just fabulous and he said to me at one point um, when I sort of flunked a sight reading exam he said <laughs> he said you obviously um, put a lot of time in on the guitar but you're not playing the classical guitar repertoire when you go home are you and I said no honestly I'm not and he said well what are you playing and I said well I listen to a lot of rock and roll and stuff and he said I'm going to tell you a secret and you know my colleagues may disagree but just play the music you love. It will carry you further than trying to do something for a level of proficiency um, solely for that. And he said it slightly differently than that, but the, the message was clear. And later, I met a colleague of yours, the great violinist Frank Almond, who said to me at a session we were doing together, I was very nervous working with him, and he said, why are you nervous? And I said, well, I just really revere classical musicians. I have great respect for people that have put in the time on their instrument to find emotional expression within something that is written in advance for them to interpret. I mean, how a musician finds their voice within that realm is really intriguing to me. And he said, well, it's an equal music, my friend, what you do and what we do. And so that really... You know, that was my takeaway. And um, so, but I still hold high standards for myself, I guess, as a player. I try to keep reaching, keep developing. I'm, I'm curious, Willie, um, for most classically trained um, musicians like myself, a large part of our training tends to be, um, tends to have a focus on technical exercises, our scales, our arpeggios. Double stops, etudes, so-called, and caprices. We do a lot of that work to try to achieve this uh, a certain level of technical control. And I'm just curious if you've ever had any kinds of technical exercises that you've played or even invented, or is it mainly you just you just work on songs and music, and at the same time you're pushing technical boundaries, obviously by looking at what you do, but. Uh, has there ever been a, a, a part where you had to practice a scale? I tried to do that, and I just, um, you know, I tried to learn the modes because uh, I wanted to play. I was playing in sort of a jam band um, 
outfit for a while, and I thought, well, this would be great if I could really broaden the palette that I'm drawing from beyond, you know, pentatonic blues scale and a minor pentatonic and so forth, which is so um, common and, and just such a common vocabulary. Um, but I ran into walls right away as soon as I tried to think of music that way. And so the short answer is yes, I did try to learn that stuff. I have since, you know, in the time that I've been playing the guitar, I have taken that approach to it. But none of that really, I, I tend to come back to things that are techniques that are fitting in the song that I'm trying to work on or trying to write. And I will come up to roadblocks in my own playing where I'll have to repeat sections to get them, quote unquote, under my hand, so to speak. And I think it's through the process of composition um, that my playing evolves a little bit. Um, and those exercises sort of show themselves. So in going back and looking at older repertoire, I'm finding, well, I was obviously working on these different right-hand or left-hand techniques at that time, and these came through in these songs. So it's, it's really fun. I, I really look at it as though the technique has to have a musicality to it to be worth working on, or it just becomes... Um, kind of a uh, an exercise without emotion and i i don't care for that as much i'm not drawn to it and that's that's certainly um you know that's a that's maybe a danger um in in the classical side where there is sometimes uh, such an incredible emphasis um mm. colleagues and maybe even even looking at my own life times when when we spend maybe an an inordinate an ordinate amount of time playing these these uh, technical exercises and getting almost divorced from your connection to anything musical since these are just um, you know boring studies um, yeah maybe maybe that's maybe that's one of the drawbacks of the way we sometimes approach things um, you you mentioned you mentioned uh, the fact and some of our listeners not may not know I mean you have such a unique um, technique that um, I'm not very familiar with with other guitarists who play the way you do, which is to say that not only the finger style stuff you're doing left hand, but the fact that you are sometimes mm -hmm. moving the right hand down and playing notes as uh, as well as the the picking and strumming and all of that stuff. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that that sort of two handed uh, crazy Willie Porter approach? Well, yeah, it's actually, um, there are some really key players that influence that for me. Um, certainly Leo Kotke and Preston Reed. Um, but the one who really left, led me to the two-handed technique stuff was Michael Hedges. And I first heard him in 1982 or 83 um, when he came to my college. And I, people had asked me, on this arts board committee that I was on if I would drive him around. Since I was a guitar player, we'd probably get along just fine. <laughs> well, I didn't know who he was. And lo and behold, he really was sort of the Jimi Hendrix of the acoustic guitar. He, he changed the world and, um, and the approach of modern fingerstyle players to the instrument and opened it up not only as a, a two-handed 
technical um, exercise, but also as a percussive instrument in a different realm. So um, that was really Michael Hedges. And since uh, he, he tragically passed a number of years ago, there is a whole series of players that have been in his wake. Antoine Defour, um, Callum Graham, uh, two fantastic uh, Canadian artists who are wonderful composers and players in their own right, but very much all in the wake of the work of Michael Hedges. So he really was at the corner of that. Fantastic. Um, I thought we might listen to something now. Is there um, a, one of your songs that you'd like to uh, select that we'll play for, for people to listen to? Sure. Um, I guess since we're talking so much about this post-Michael Hedges technique and stuff, um, maybe Bears Ears and The Great Law, we could just do a, a section of that, if you like. That might give them an idea of what we're talking about. Thank you. 
All right, that was uh, that was Bears Ears, um, fantastic song. This is the kind of um, it's the kind of, of technique that I just love about your playing, and um, we've had a couple chances to work on songs with strings where you employ some of those types of, of techniques. Um, I'm thinking of Breathe in particular, one of a song that I really love, and maybe later in this um, podcast we'll close perhaps with a a song that features the strings alongside you. Oh, I would love that. Yeah. I wonder if I could turn now for a moment to another aspect of, of your creative work, which is again, for someone like me, I mean, um, somehow the classical world evolved for the, for quite a few generations now where if you work hard on your instrument and study, you perform. And then there's also folks who, uh, compose mm. and they have to um as as i put it deal with staring at the blank slate and wondering what the hell you're gonna do um <laughs> but you 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 of course you you compose music all the time that you also perform um alongside the co- composition of the music itself you're a songwriter and you're a poet you're writing words and i wondered if you could would would talk a little bit about um, where songs come from. Where do words, uh, where do the ideas come from that start to become the songs? I I know some of your songs stray into um, per, towards politics a little bit in a, in a way, mm-hmm. or commentary on life certainly. Like your song "How to Rob a Bank" is one that I love, and it definitely has a, a message there about what we're doing. <laughs> Um, but then some of your songs just talk about more universal human qualities, love lost, love won, perhaps, um, growing up, children. So, uh, but I'm, I'm always in, in, so impressed by someone who can, can, can go from nothing and, and write music, write words, create a story that moves people, which is what you do. Well, thank you. I think the story is the key to that whole question. Um, and the stories that we find that are defined by characters we know, um, characters we imagine, um, where they live, the food they eat, the company they keep, um, also dreams and diversions, things that um, stand in the way of the goals in our life. What are those things? Um, and so journaling, I find, is a way to sort of open up your subconscious and find the things that are meaningful to you. And then you can focus on them. And, you know, I've written songs about newspaper clippings. I've written songs about friends of mine who I've sort of lost along the way. Um, I think the main objective is that our emotional inner states are all valid. We spend a lot of time questioning them as humans. Um, and as writers, I think it's important to give those, those feelings and emotions a stage. And by writing a song that involves them, you release them. And the neat thing is, no one ever has to hear that but you've excised that, you've removed that, or at least examined it more closely. So for me, the process of writing a song is very much uh, 
sort of a cleanse. I don't know how else to say it, um, of trying to find some honesty on something, but also um, really trying to give it a lot of different angles of perspective. You mentioned, uh, you know, maybe seeing a newspaper clipping or something. You also, I, I, I remember a story you sometimes tell on stage about how an idea for a song came to you. You said that we were in a parking lot and you overheard a couple arguing. Mm. And, and from that, you, you, obviously you, you transformed it into a story, into a story that's not just about those two people became something more than that. But, um, so those, those ideas really come from a lot of different sources then. And in a, in a case like that, where you overhear a conversation or you read something in a newspaper, um, that starts to generate words. And when does the music come or is it? Is it hand in hand, or do you sometimes write out lyrics without a tune? It, it happens every single way, but lately, the majority of the time, there's a guitar involved, and I'll get a first line, and I'll try to just get stuck into that emotional uh, currency, whatever that is. So if it's something that's got some aggression on the guitar and it's driving, you know, I try to stick with that for a second and see, well, where is this going? And if it's, if it's a real ballad, um, you know, that's, and it has a, a beautiful cadence to it, then I want the lyric to really support that moment. Um, I think the song you're referencing is Dishwater Blonde, and that was, all the lyrics were written while I was in the car, having seen this couple, and and I just, I saw how they were behaving and I realized how ubiquitous that is and how we all go through these moments in our, in our deepest relationships where we fail each other or someone has failed. And, you know, there are questions that need to be answered and there are, you know, uh, demands being made. And in that moment, I thought, well, this is just every relationship. So I know, I know this one. <laughs> You know, that's funny. So you see something outside of yourself and it, it is a mirror to understanding. Absolutely. That's well said. Um, well, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, first of all, I, where we all are right now, which is uh, dealing with this, this COVID pandemic um, and how that's impacted you as a as an artist, as a professional artist, you make your living through your music. Um, but but if you wouldn't mind, Willie, it might also be interesting to go back in time a, a little bit because um, recording itself um, has changed over the years, what you could expect it to be as part of um, a source of, of income that a, that a creative artist could depend upon. That's changed a lot from when you began um, working in the in the early '90s was was your your first albums, is that right? Yes, early '90s. Yeah, so so that whole process has has been changing, and we've all been dealing with it, especially the last probably ten years. And then COVID has hit and it really upended it even farther. So, if that's not too too broad a question, maybe you can speak a little bit about that. No, it's a great it's a great question. Um, Recording, when I first started out, was all tape, of course. And because it was tape, 
I think the preparation for a session was um, really much more intense. Um, you really, and as you know, I mean, I don't think you'd ever go in the studio unprepared, um, certainly not with the quartet or anybody, maybe with a folk musician or somebody that you're improvising with, you go in and just play. However, um, for me, I took it really seriously the first couple albums um, to be super prepared and really have the music under my hands. Um, and the decisions that you had to make were so much more immediate. The tempo of the session was much faster because you couldn't fix things. You had to just do it. You had to play it, you know. And I love that. And so I've tried to treat digital recording, which came later, um, in the same way that you, it's just a tape machine. And if you can treat Pro Tools or Logic or whatever it is you're using as just a recording mechanism and not something that you're going to go in and, and cut everything up and move it around and so on and so forth, um, the outcome, I think, has a lot more life and soul to it. So that's probably the, the first part of your question. Um, and as that relates to COVID and, and how the industry has changed, leading up to this pandemic, I think artists like myself, and perhaps you as well, we have really lost the income stream that came from all of our merchandise sales and from our CDs and so forth. And that has been a tough adaptation. And if we take that in the last six months, we could look at that adaptation as being pushed further much faster and that we've all had to learn how to become self-broadcasters. And that has been an amazing journey. Um, since COVID hit, I think I've done 24 live stream shows from my house called Live from the Bunker. And those have been amazingly fun. I've had a great time doing them. Um, I've learned a ton about my chops. I've learned a lot about broadcasting and I've seen it as a great journey with my son who's a photographer and, um, and filmmaker. And he's very creative and has had some great insights on how to improve what we're doing. So I've looked at it as a learning opportunity. Um, we're all working five times as hard to make a third of the money. <laughs> and that's kind of what the music business is now. And with COVID, it's even harder. But the optimism is still there, I think, within the musicians to reach an audience, um, provide um, some unification through the music. It still provides this wonderful uh, healing power not particularly I don't look at my own music that way but certainly when a community comes together and they can comment to each other virtually while watching a show I think there's a lot of power to that I think that's really a wonderful thing and so that's been great yeah it's 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 interesting I mean um as you said through the oh I don't know I guess after 2000 somewhere when it became relatively common to be able to get your music on iTunes or Spotify or, or, um, and or, or other platforms as those things became, 
um, became well known. Um, I don't know that many listeners understand that when they see a, tr- a track from your album on sale for 99 cents, the tiny, tiny one hundredth of a penny that you'll actually get for that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really it's... tough. And in some respects, maybe maybe becoming your own broadcaster, as you as you put it, um, during COVID is is an opportunity to be a little more more in control of of that. Um, there, there are perhaps not quite as many middle people taking out so much of the money. Um, it always seems that the creative artists, we, we must spend too much time making the music because we're not spending the time to figure out how to make the profits, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, a friend pointed out one time that some of the greatest musicians on the planet, um, jazz musicians who love to sit in a room and communicate with each other in this wonderful ethereal dialogue of music that's being you know played in the moment and they might have a lead sheet in front of them but that's basically just a guide to the galaxy once the song kicks off anything can happen they're so interested in that level of communication that they'll do it anywhere and they don't necessarily need to get paid to do it they love it that much and I think having the music be the cornerstone of why we're doing what we're doing guarantees that we'll stay connected to it. And I feel like that's just something that I'm so grateful for. Um, and I come back to and I remind myself of when money is tight. Remember, you can still play. You can still do this. And if you put everything you have into it every time you do it, or at least try to, that the universe will respond to that on some on some level and it just always has well that's kind of deep man i don't know um sorry brother (laughs) it's 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 definitely true but i always i always feel uh you also need a good agent (laughs) well you know the the flip side is you you sometimes or at least i sometimes encounter um People who would say, "Well, how can you even, how can you even be so crass as to talk about money? You're so lucky to be making music." And I do, I do think I'm lucky, but it is still paying the mortgage. So, you know, we, for all that I love it and wouldn't choose to do anything else, um, yes, that's a reality. We are, <laughs> we are, we are making car payments and mortgage payments and trying to send kids to college and all of those. Oh, there's no doubt. Absolutely. I do agree. And that was a bit ethereal of me to say that. But um, it does come down to that. And I do believe that everything is broadcast. And if you're just doing this to try to get over and get, you know, to get paid, it rings false in the long term. Yeah. I mean, I um, there, there has to be some kind of happy, happy union between both pursuing... Yes what you truly care about and hopefully being able to, to pay bills. Um, do you mind if I, if I just get into an area that uh, a question that interests me because it's, um, having worked with you, it was one of the first things that was kind of a, a revelation. Um, and it, it, 
it, you made me think of it earlier when you mentioned working with uh, Frank Almond and that you were nervous because when I've been around you, I don't sense nerves. So I wanted to ask you about the the comment that you made about Frank Almond. You said you were nervous when you mm. worked with him. And, and I, I find that hard to believe because being around you, um, you seem to lack any of the what, what we commonly call um, stage fright or performance anxiety that, that is so ubiquitous in the classical world. I mean, you hang around classical folks and before the concert, we're nervously practicing every hard passage that we're convinced we're going to screw up. And when we come off stage from a performance that might have left the audience, uh, you know, just euph euphoric, we're saying, oh, man, the, the, the transition into B wasn't that good. I, I mean, it's a, it's a strange mindset that you find in classical musicians most of the time. I, I won't mm -hmm. say that it's universal, but it's common. And being around you, you're excited before this show starts. You're really looking forward to it. It seems like you can't get, wait to get out on stage. And there seems to be an, a real joy that about what you're doing and what you're communicating that frankly I I see in some of my classical colleagues as something we've we've lost touch with a little bit maybe hmm. in part because of this insane um drive we have to somehow be to chase that elusive perfect that we're always practicing for so so hmm. yeah I just wondered if if I, I I wondered if you ever do feel nervous before a performance Every single time. I, I'm nervous every time that I play. And um, the one thing that I've been working on lately, um, I heard this great story from a friend of mine who's worked with professional golfers most of his life. And he said, when you see a golfer on the course and they, they miss a shot and then they take their, you know, they, they curse or they throw their you know, their golf club or they strike it on the ground. What they just did was they burned that memory into their neural passages in their brain. And they're much, much more likely to repeat the mistake in the future because they've given that anxious moment a real emotional definition. And it's very much a neuron-based thought pattern experience. And like you, I've come off stage so many times and said, you know, the audience had a wonderful time, but I blew the intro on that song, or I really need to go fix that. And why did I sing so flat on this, you know, other passage? Or, you know, I really am, a, I, I am so much a perfectionist too in what I do. So I really understand that. And I think I would just want to work on being more present, and also memorizing the emotional state of performing well in rehearsal. What is that? So when I really feel like I'm fluid and getting through a piece of music, I want to I play that again and think about how that felt. Now, how do I carry that to a room with people in it who've never seen me? Well, I just have to try to remember and visualize what it was like to feel it that way. And I always feel like great classical musicians must be doing that. And this is something I've just started to really look into now. 
Um, do you guys channel? Do you do use visualization? Do you? Yeah, we do. We do use a lot of different techniques like that. It's it's interesting because another thing about classical music musicians are training. Um, when I was a when I was a kid, when I was a student in college, this was still a time when um, nervousness and stage fright was really kind of. I wouldn't say it was a forbidden topic, but it was never spoken aloud. You just pretended it wasn't there, even though everyone knew that it was. And okay. um, it's only gradually that started to be where people just openly talk about the fact that, yeah, you can get nervous. It can affect your performance. But what are some of the ways you can deal with that? And I, and I think I think athletes have led the way. They've, I agree. They've been openly speaking about having a, having a psychologist who's part of the team and works with people, talking them through things when they're going through a slump or when they're going through, you know, when a, when a pitcher is finding for some reason that they can't find the plate. You know, they, they talk to people. They try to analyze what's going on in the brain and, and which is, which is called, causing this. And, you know, what you were saying earlier about that drive to, to, uh, to be perfect or to be better. Um, I talk about this with my students a lot, which is if you didn't have that, what would be the drive that, that kept you moving, trying to climb higher or mm. just discover different things? Um, that has to be balanced with an understanding that it's not, while it may be one of the most important things to you, the creator, it's not the most important thing for the people you're playing for in that moment. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I think part of the joy of witnessing a live performance is to see the joy of the performers, that they're really, um, they're integrated into the music um, on a very, very high level. Um, the Eagles, for instance, I wouldn't care to go see them anymore because their concerts are just a recitation of the album. It's basically the exact same thing. The solos are the same. There's very little room. Um, and I, you know, I, if I went to see somebody play Mahler, I'd want to hear it be pretty accurate, right? I'd want to hear that, and I'd want to hear a great performance of that piece for instance, but when I go to hear a rock show, I want to hear these people express within that form in a different way than a classical musical piece. So how do we channel that? How do we get to that sweet spot? You know, how do we get our swing back? And for me, I think these broadcasts have been kind of nerve-wracking in the beginning because there was no audience. So all of a sudden, I'm looking at this little camera lens and thinking, well, you know, this is a load of shite. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to, like, I can't tell if I'm doing anything well or not. And I realized you have to go back to the source of what this music is for you and then draw from there. And that, it sounds nebulous and obtuse, but it's really quite simple if you... You know, if you wanted to write the song, what was it that drove you to do it? 
get to that space because that is going to drive your performance. And if you try to invent emotion or insert emotion that's misaligned or misapplied into a musical form, it, it shows up in bad performance or an inability to hold time or inaccuracy or pitchiness. So all of these things are things I'm constantly working on, but I also journal after the show and write down what I got right. I always start with, what did you get right? Yeah, that's really interesting. And something else that you said earlier, which is that, you know, when you when you were going into the studio to record something, mm-hmm. um, particularly, of course, once once digital editing became became the norm, you not only do you know that virtually every note can be fixed, you also know that now there's this expectation. There's a vast body of of hundreds of thousands of recordings that have all been fixed. So the expectation that you could release a a CD that had a single mistake of any kind on it, there's kind of this pressure. There was this pressure, I think, that many of us felt. And what was interesting, I found when I tried to uh, start putting together some digital concerts during COVID, since there was no audience and you've got microphones and a camera sitting in front of you, I found myself slipping into recording mode where you're just worried about not having a single mistake show up on this on this concert and that's not that's not a concert that's that's I mean maybe that shouldn't have ever even been recording but that's not a concert right so I no, I, I yeah. really struggled with that to to try to overcome that 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 mindset That's interesting to hear that because I I feel like there's something I really admire about the sort of tenacity and the the rehearsal schedule of a professional classical musician in preparing repertoire. And I've seen you and the quartet do that, where it's the concert's not for a month, but you're already way ahead on this material. And somebody's going through the Boeings or you're doing something and you're going and you're playing through this. And it sounds rough to you, but it's it's just magical to me. And to think that you've got a bar that you've set in your mind that you will achieve in two weeks' time, or you're going to get there, and you have to start now, and you're sort of at the base camp of these pieces, and maybe you've already played them many, many times in the past, but I look at that, and I really admire that. And I thought, well, that's a way to get to the place where you're involving all the kinesthesiology of muscle memory, but also there's this great comfort and trust between the players that you have to have in a small ensemble. So I've really sort of taken some of that and thought, prepare, 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 and work hard, but also make sure you're having fun, damn it. You know, make sure. That's for sure. I mean, um, it takes, maybe it takes a little time. I don't think I appreciated certainly when I was, when I was young, just how little time we may have, of course. Um, and my, my, my colleague, Corrine, who um, uh, wrote a wonderful piece that we perform a lot with the quartet um, called Fiddle Sweet Montana. One of the movements. Oh, that it's she, fantastic. 
it's it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a wonderful piece. Um, and and one of the movements that she will sometimes introduce to the audience, um, she talks about the how important the here and now is because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And um, and it's it's funny over over the years I've heard her tell that story um, a few times, and each time as I get older, it means more to me those words there. Mm. Um, I I think again that simply the perspective of understanding that there's a moment you have when you are able to play music for some people and who who will be getting something from it. And that it is just a moment that will be gone. Um, Absolutely. And I think um, to try to be as present as possible for that is a great, it's just a great mission. And it's, um, there's always, there's always a mistake and there's always um there's always something that I get wrong. I you know, I know that. And I I've learned to laugh at that and see the mistakes a little bit more as gifts along the way than as these burdens. And um technical things I've learned to kind of work around, but there are things in the moment that are unaccountable effects that I you know, the guitar slips out of tune. It happens. You know, you flam a little bit or your time moves a little bit. Something happens. This is all part of this drift. And I think the greatest musicians that I love, Pat Metheny, I just love him so much. There are notes on some of his solos where he clearly makes a mistake. It's just a, it's a real honker of a note that doesn't, you know, or he kind of misses the fret and it's a little fret buzzy thing. And he left it in there. And I just feel like that makes that painting that much richer for me. You know, Stefan Grappelli too. I listen to the Django and Stefan recordings and they're full of these movements and these moments of great humanity. Um, mistakes I dare not say. I don't know. But they sound like they're a little pitchy here and there and that they were swinging it, you know. It's fun. Probably the greatest violinist to, that we we had was um, Yasha Heifetz. Certainly, technically, he was he was he was the king for a while. And those were the days when um, recordings really had almost no editing. If you would play a piece, and if you if there were mistakes, you had to play it again. Um, so this was even before much uh, tape cutting could could would go on. And there was a famous. Um, recording of a Beethoven trio that there's an obvious mistake that he made and they the story is that they came to the end of the performance and after the silence cleared um one of the musicians said well I guess we're doing that again and supposedly Heifetz said leave it in for history and he was they were done with that movement and and that's how the that's how the recording was issued it's it's a fabulous yeah, it's, I mean, especially for a guy who there's almost no mistakes on any of his dozens oh. of recordings. I mean, an unbelievable player, but yeah. I like the That's, idea that someone could just decide to let, let, it, let it be as it was. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a daring thing to do, I guess, back in the day, right? Um, for him, because you open the, the criticism of 
those in power that might say, well, maybe he's slipping or, you know, right. right. I, I mean, and, and there was a, there was a change of, there was a change of attitude about these things that probably coincided with the ability to start doing more editing. But um, there was a famous, uh, uh, there's a story about, about um, Rubenstein who famously played in what was called sort of an old fashioned technique. He, oftentimes his, his left and right hand weren't perfectly together. So you would hear the left hand um, play, play a little before the right chords would have a tiny bit of break in them and so forth. And um, this started to become less and less fashionable um, in the fifties and sixties. And supposedly as he was still making records, um, producers started editing the music and making the hands sound together. Wow. So it was, so that it was more, so that it was more pristine, so to speak, but you weren't even getting the, the true player there, you know, the producer was starting to become um, as important as the artist in, in some mm. respects. Well, this gets to a question that I wanted to ask you. And, and that is within a classical piece that's well known, it seems to me that for the first violinist or let's say the soloist, it's very difficult to establish your voice within that piece to, in fact, stylize it so that people recognize that player's tonality. Joshua Bell, um, some of the other, he may not be a great example, um, Yitzhak Perlman, some of these great violinists, Isaac Stern. It seems to me that they are known for a certain tonality that they bring to this performance. Can you speak to a little bit of, of that? How, how much room you have to work within this music? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, you're, you're, you're correct. Um, again, just speaking broadly, in the beginning of the 20th century, um, when we started to have recordings of artists, I'll speak mainly of violinists, um, since I, since I know them the best, you had violinists like Fritz Kreisler, Misha Elman, um, then the young Heifetz who came along. Um, these artists were perhaps less inundated with recordings of everyone else. Um, yeah. there was much, much greater regional difference between not just these solo artists, but orchestras, the Philadelphia Orchestra or the Vienna Philharmonic. Um, artists and, or and orchestras, people sounded quite different and you could literally listen to one note of Fritz Kreisler or one note of a Misha Elman. You could identify who was playing because, wow. because their approaches were so different. Artists also had much greater latitude to a particular piece they played, they thought the composer could have written these measures one octave higher to make it flashier or with mm. double stops to make it a little richer sounding. And people, so people made editorial changes um, to the music of, of that nature. Sometimes people, people would decide that 
that um, Tchaikovsky went on too many times in repetition. So they would make cuts and they would make the piece shorter, a little more compact for the listener. We And gradually as the 20th century um, went on, the idea that you could do anything other than try to reproduce the notes on the page as you think the composer intended them, um, your interpretation, your choices got narrower, more and more narrow. Um, and again, perhaps because everyone just heard everyone, the long, the, the short answer is that nowadays there's an extremely high level of playing uh, around the world, just fantastic. But I would put it to the test that you could play a recording of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, Chicago, New York, London, Paris. You'd be very hard pressed to tell any orchestra apart from one another. They just all sound good. And the same is really <clears throat> true a little bit. Not quite as much. Of course, individuals always have a voice, but even recordings of from the last 30 years of violinists playing um, the Brook Concerto or the Tchaikovsky Concerto, everyone is really good, but everyone sounds awfully similar. That's interesting. Um, do you think this uh, homogenization is the wrong word, but the stylistic sort of... Um, um, streamlining, if you will, of, of this repertoire, is that due to everybody hearing everybody in real time? Is that due to digital transmission of this data and information? Or is that, have we lost regional dialect, is what I'm kind of asking? Homogenization is a good word, I think. And yes, I do think that just the exposure, mm. everybody is hearing everyone else. Um, and so I do think that's part of it, but I think the other part was that there was a, within our, our classical musical culture, there was this shift that occurred. And I think, I think the best way I can say it is that the idea that you would, that you would make an interpretive decision about how you want to play something, um, that went against what the composer wrote down became kind of taboo. And mm -hmm. composers, um, I mean, I, I think it was Leonard Bernstein who coined the phrase that classical music is, is not the right name. What it should be called is exact music because you're trying to play exactly every note mm -hmm. and not just every note. The composer says, play this note loud, play this note soft, play these notes a little faster. You're given directions on much of what would be, fall under the, the umbrella of interpretation. Um, hence the reason Bernstein famously said, you know, we're trying to play it exactly that one sort of elusive way. So I think that had a lot to do with it as well. And I'll, I'll close by, by um, relating a story from my teaching. Um, and maybe this touches upon in some ways on the freedom that I, I, that I admire an artist like you, you have to create your own music and play it any way you want. But, um, so I, I was, I was teaching. For better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had a student who, um, was a really talented kid and, um, I loved working with him. 
And he was a he was a pretty good violinist, but he was not interested in being a classical musician. He told me the day he walked in as an undergrad freshman, he wanted to be in a band. And in fact, he was in a band already. Um, and since graduating, his his band um, has been doing pretty well. You know, they're they're moving up in, into into doing more and more national um, shows and things versus Excellent. regional. Yeah, he's doing great. But he was playing a piece for me by Shostakovich. And Shostakovich, like most classical manuscripts that you look at, Shostakovich has a tempo indication. This is how fast you're supposed to play this section. And he's got dynamics, how loud and how soft. And he's got indications some notes should be short, some notes should be long. I mean, so much is dictated to us, right? And my student was not playing anything remotely like what's on the page. He's playing it the way, and he always played with an incredible um, conviction and passion. He, he really felt it. And I stopped him and I said, I said, young, I won't use his name to embarrass him, but I, I stopped him and I said, you know, you're, you know, you're really not playing what Shostakovich indicated. And I said, as a performer who's playing somebody else's creative work, do you think you have a responsibility to try to play it the way they indicated it on the page? And what he a thought great about question. It. Yeah. He thought about it. And then he looked at me and he said, no. <laughs> and I thought it was great in a way, first of all, because he was, he was honest and he was sincere and he wasn't trying to bullshit me. Sure. But, but also, I thought about that, may, maybe this isn't entirely true, but I thought, you know, in, in, in popular music, his band, if they wanted to do a, if they wanted to take a, a, a Michael Jackson tune, and redo it on their own terms, make it kind of a grunge thing, or throw in a fiddle lick that never happened. Whatever you can do that, right? You can kind of take the sure. song. You can take the song over and do what you want. Absolutely. And, but you can't do that in the classical world. That's just not how we're. That's not how we're operating these days. And so, how did we get from the era that you referenced earlier in our discussion here, where? Somebody was taking sections out of Tchaikovsky. I mean, that's kind of like taking chapters out of Moby Dick. I mean, how do you, how are you, that sort of level of power that a player could do that to where we are now? How, how has that transpired that the sort of the rigor of adhering to what was on the page and the composer intended um, versus you know what? You have your own voice. You have your own vision. Sure, we can shorten this program and accommodate this great player who's going to basically do what they want to do. Um, it seems like a, a very strange journey to go back towards a more conservative view. Um, does that make sense at all, the question? It, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard question to, to answer with any authority. I mean... I would guess that, among other things, it's simply the fact that we we take these um, these these sort of swings in culture sometimes, mm -hmm. and the pendulum has been maybe too far in one direction. Maybe you shouldn't just rewrite something Tchaikovsky wrote just because you feel like doing something else. Um, maybe that's maybe that's a, a little too disrespectful to the creator. Or, mm. but to go the other way where you're where you're literally saying 
I can't do anything that I don't think the composer wrote. Like maybe there, maybe there ought to be middle ground. Um, and it's just hard to find that because we, you know, I mean, look at, look at where we are right now, where yes. polarization and the idea that we took some, I don't know, we're, 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 we're straying towards politics, but we're, we're we've certainly been taking some, some divergence these last couple of years from where we had been just a few earlier. I agree. Yeah. Um, well, the reason I wondered about it was more <clears throat> was more in that cultural anthropology sort of vein that um, it's it's very fascinating to me as a musician to try to understand that um, and how there's there's a great deal of protection to save a lot of this great repertoire. Um, it seems as though the audience for it, um, I know, has been decreasing as the demographic has shifted away from being interested in classical music. Um, it seems as though perhaps, um, what's the, uh, the great cellist name? Is it Heifetz? Um, Matthew Heifetz, the one who was traveling around and, and playing in pubs and stuff. And he's yeah, Matt, Matt Heimovitz. Heimovitz, thank you. Um, that was an interesting approach to take to try to reach a new audience, you know, and he was saying that Bach wrote these pieces to be played in pubs and that they're, they're songs of for the people and that we need to sort of maybe break down some of the, the ways people hear this music in order to reach a new audience. And I, I know you've done a great deal of work in that regard um, with the quartet, but I just wonder about the adherence to this, and you may not have an answer, and forgive the long-winded question, but it seems as though the music must survive, and for it to survive, it has to meet the challenges of the day, too. And um, and to reach an audience, it has to bend a little bit. Yeah, well, I, absolutely. I mean, I think that... Um, this is this is a question that just touches on so many different. Um, yeah, it's a really it's a bogus question. You can disregard it. It's a great question. Um, you know they, so so what's the what's the usual sort of um, insult of of classical musicians uh, like a lot of other things? You know we're sort of these elites living in our ivory tower. To some, there you know like a lot of things there there's some there's some grains of truth to that statement, um, we did perhaps and can still sometimes get too removed from thinking about getting our music out to a wider audience, not expecting everyone to just um, come to our door, but mm. um, to think that we could, we could step into someone else's world a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, I think one of the things that 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 a musician like you does, which is so great, is is um, you go out and you people are going to applaud, but you you don't just immediately sit down and turn sideways or almost with your back to them and start playing in your own world. You're going to talk to them. You're telling them a story before you start your song. When you finish, you're going to talk to them again. Like there's. There's a there's a dialogue, a spoken dialogue, along with the musical dialogue. Um, so often we've all seen 
the classical musicians file onto stage, barely even look at the audience, let alone talk to them. And they're already sort of looking at that music on the, on their stand and getting to their zone, playing their thing, and then leaving the stage. And everything has its place, but I mean, that can seem a little bit sterile, I think. Yes, sure. Sometimes I look at the music that is being played, though, and I think it demands that kind of focus, you know? It's almost as though you, and I've seen some of the repertoire that you've played, I don't know how you could think about anything else. You have to really be present for that. And so I think there's a time and a place, you know, um, for that sort of interaction. But I, I do understand what you're saying, that it could be more of a show, you know, which is, it's still a show from the standpoint of the performance, but in terms of, of relating, breaking the fourth wall, if you will. Right. I, I was looking, I was, I was relating that more from, from that perspective, like someone who says, I'm going to go into a pub and I'm going to grab the mic and say hello to people and say, you know, I want to play a piece of music that maybe you've never heard. And it's by a guy named Bach. And then, yeah, if you, for a piece like that, if you need to sink into a kind of focus of just playing that music um, with every bit of, of, of brain power and heart power and muscle power that you've got, great. But, but then you can lift your head up and see that people actually quieted down for a little while to listen to it um, and then to say something else. And yeah, I mean... Right. They can these 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 two things can coexist, obviously. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I I wonder about that. It's uh, you have so much power in this repertoire and sometimes it seems as though, you know, we've all seen the, the videos of the guys playing in the subway in New York and it could be some unbelievable musician is just turned up for a day and is playing for an hour. Um, it, does that still, what is the value of that? Does it have to be a $150 ticket or is it still, do we diminish the value by making it free, by giving it away as it were? And, um, that's a debate I have with myself all the time, you know? That's a really tough, tough question. Um, and do, and part of that of course is do people, assume something that's free is not of value. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Because um, we have thousands of hours in to get to this level. I know you do, certainly. Um, do you ever find yourself, do you ever get bored musically? I've always wanted to ask you that. You know, people people do ask me that. Um, and and many, many artists get asked that question because there's certain pieces, of course, that are, the favorites, you know, you, if you play in an orchestra every year or every other year, you're going to be playing Beethoven fifth symphony. Um, as a violinist, you know, certainly someone like Josh Bell, um, such a wonderful, wonderful artist. How many times has he played Tchaikovsky violin concerto now in his life? How many hundreds of times, um, if not thousands of times, you know, it's ridiculous. I'm, I guess I'm lucky. Um, because I just don't get bored. Um, mm. The music is 
the music is is wonderful even even works that are not perhaps considered quote unquote as great a masterpiece um so is tchaikovsky's concerto is that kind of um is that sort of like your stairway to heaven <laughs> you know Cheik is uh it's it's a it's a fantastic piece of music very romantic very moving and it's also a great like violin piece i mean the the demands on your chops to play it and and um the stamina sh- because it's one of the longest concertos i mean the first movement alone is uh 20 minutes you know you're wow. just sawing away um yeah it's a great it's a great piece i it's not necessarily the most sublime i mean i I've it's it's also I I I guess I cop out on that question of like what's your favorite piece because how do you choose between a work by Brahms or Beethoven or Mozart or Tchaikovsky I mean or, and 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 more contemporary works that we have through the 20th century um there's so many great pieces of music and I'm only rattling off some of the best known you know classical composers but I love, I love the music of yours that we've gotten to play together. Mm. Music simply, when I play it, um, it does something to me. Um, when all goes well, you, you know, it's like the hair on the back of your neck goes up. Mm. That's music. Or you feel something and you want, you want, you you feel that emotional tug. So it it really doesn't matter to me um, what the music is if it moves me and it and it doesn't matter how many times i've played it you can always find that center within it again mm-hmm. yeah i mean sure notwithstanding that i'm a human being you can there can be a day when you're not feeling well or you're tired or whatever of course but yeah but i don't think that's what you meant um, no it's not at all um i'm always interested more in the psychological side of how we sort of find find the center of the song that's what i call it it's like the point from which you present your role in it you know you contribute to this thing i've done so much work where i'm sort of carrying the whole load up the hill so when it came time and i was fortunate to collaborate with you guys with cdsq I found that it was such a great exercise for me to try to be consistent in what I was doing each time so that what you guys had written within that song would then, you, your role wouldn't be destabilized <laughs> by the fifth member. And I think, I, I'm not trying to take a, a shot at myself. I'm just saying that it made me want to raise my game and I think that's that's a really great thing when you have a team that's like you guys were functioning and, and are now, of course, as such a great unit <clears throat> that to be invited to sit within that circle, it's a really powerful thing. And you really want to contribute and not, um, you know, have everybody have to modify what they do to accommodate you or, you know, you want things to be fluid and dynamic and. Sure. I mean, I, 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 if that makes any sense, it makes total sense, but it, it's, um, I'm just going to sort of cotton on to one thing you said, which is you didn't want to 
as the fifth person when you played with the quartet, you didn't want to upset um, the sort of unity of the group. But it, but 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 that additional element, that little bit of chaos that you bring, um, mm. and, uh -huh. and it's not really chaos, but um, that was a really wonderful experience for us because um, as we touched on earlier, one of the things that um, we started to do in a much, much more after, because of your influence and because of the work we did with you was to improvise. And we don't have to get into the weeds here too much, except to say that again, improvisation is something that largely disappeared from the classical musicians training and experience. And as we became so highly skilled at reading the page, re reading mm -hmm. down the music that's been written out for us, um, we not only lost the, the, the skill to improvise, it even became something that kind of terrified, um, mm. terrified us. And again, that was the remarkable thing of, of working with someone like you who doesn't work off the page. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, you can just kind of improvise like a whole show, whereas we, <laughs> we have to have that practiced um, for months approach. Um, so that was really that was really a, a, a total, in a way, a total game changer um, for me to think about <clears throat> allowing yourself to exist in a place where you have not practiced in advance for what you're about to do. You may have, of course, you've practiced to have mastery of your instrument, but to, to simply be on stage and to have a moment in, in a song where for one, two or three minutes, whatever it is, we don't know what's going to happen. That's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun to leave that, that open space in there. And, um, allow yourself the liberty to stretch, you know? I think that's one of the things that's, um, that's sort of in physics, they call it the unaccountable effect. Um, in music, what is soul? How does that, how does that filter into um, how you play and, and how you lay back in terms of the time structure that you're playing within? And a lot of people that I've met who play a lot of classical music are very much on the front of the beat they're very, um, you know, they're very sort of earnest in, in their, their approach to how they play. Um, but you guys have this very sort of, you can really lay back um, and really feel something. And you can also not play much at all, which... Which sometimes of, is what you want, <laughs> I guess, well. You know, I think the measure of a great player is what they don't say, right? And... Um, I just, you know, I I play, I overplay all the time. But my point is that it's it's kind of rare, isn't it, to find a, a musicians that have studied and come through Juilliard and um, these great institutions that are also, you know, sort of hip and can just sit in on anything. You know. Well, thank you. That that's that's kind kind words. You know, the again, I think. I think classical musicians, um, the level of training, the level of playing, of performance is so incredibly high. Um, but but how you how you are trained and how you are 
prepared, you know, does have such a, an impact on what your comfort zone is. Again, mm. musician, classical musicians who spend so much time in the practice room practicing their scales, their etudes, their piece with a metronome to have a kind of absolute mechanical precision of, of um, exactness and steadiness. And that's a really important thing for classical musicians. You can't take an orchestra audition. Um, some of the pieces you'll be required to play are designed specifically to check how metronomic you can keep a certain piece of music. Okay. Um, but I think that's, I think all of that training can make it hard for some musicians to, to do what you do, which is, I don't know what the right word is. It's, but it's, it's, it's in a groove and it's really rhythmic, but it's not necessarily related to the mechanics of a metronome tapping no. while you're, while you're playing. It's, no. a, it's a different kind of, um yeah it's, it's like a it's living rubato kind of way of playing i right and I, I didn't mean to throw the juilliard under the bus there at all i just what i meant by that was that it's just kind of an interesting um it's an interesting combination of skills to reach such a high level on your instrument um within a certain repertoire but then have also gathered all of these other skills that are outside of what you were trained to do and that to me is remarkable when a musician has that level it's kind of puts you in a very small percentage it's it's um it's it's i mean maybe it's it's in part just like everything else in the world um we our profession has become so incredibly specialized mm. and that's why you can have instrumentalists who are capable of just performing to such a degree of control on their instrument and beautifully playing beautifully as well beautiful sound um but if you were to say to them can we can we play this little folk tune together and can we improvise they would truly just put their instrument down and say no i can't do that it's just i've met them yeah i i do I know a couple of people that are that way. Um, well, Willie, I've I've um, I've kept you talking for a long time. Would it be too um, Would it be too self serving on my part if we were to close with uh, one of the songs that we recorded together um, with Carpe Diem and and you, Willie? Maybe we could close with a little moonbeam. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. What a joyful arrangement and such a fun recording. So, what a pleasure to speak with you again, my friend. Thank you.
such a welcome sight Nothing in my pocket now, now, now Walk with me tonight All cars in the target Broken glass and chrome Down along the railway, railway Behind a funky little home Riding in the sumac Waiting for a train Got a penny on the railway Hey, that little moonbeam I forgot your song Tells me I've been gone too long. Seems to me that you give your life to free, that you shared your beams on me. Jacket high, Lord, 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 Lord. The wind would fill my sail. Got a penny on the rail.